this is Interscription for April 14th, 2022. This is our second episode. I'm your host, Rich Frankel. And I'm Tim Mark Walter. And today on the pod, we're going to be talking about all kinds of fun stuff. We touch on Nintendo first-party games, a little bit of conversation about who we are, why we're doing this thing. Uh, We'll get into a review of everything, everywhere, all at once, touch on home servers, and why all of the big tech companies are awful in their own special ways. Stay tuned. Hope you enjoy. And that is a live fade out, so hopefully it works. And if I have to go back and do it later, we'll go back and do it later. But it sounded convincing. At some point, if we keep doing that, we're just going to rename Interscription to fixitinpost.com. I'm sure that's not taken. We'll, <laughs> that's exactly we'll, right. That's it. That's it. That's all anybody wants to know about. Says, that is a god. So I right at the top, I wanted to jump into uh, Nintendo. My kids have been all Xbox all the time. I have a Switch that's sitting there collecting dust, and Nintendo dropped Switch game or Switch Sports uh, this last week, which is Wii Sports was kind of one of the pivotal titles for the Wii. It was uh, one of the things that they used to really show off the console and it made me realize more than anything i didn't realize that they didn't have switch sports already you know it seemed like something that should have been a launch title uh and first of all it looks beautiful and much like uh, wii sports uh, i think there's six or seven games it's not a huge title in the way you know mario party just has a mini game after mini game it's a little more of a focused experience but it made me go back and follow this trail back to 2017 because the Switch is almost five years old now. And there really weren't a lot of first-party titles at launch. Uh, we had um, Zelda. Uh, I think Mario Kart came out a month after launch. They had that uh, interesting arms game that used the two kind of controllers to do boxing and Splatoon. And it wasn't until, uh, let's say, October, October or so that Mario wow. Odyssey launched. And I don't know, were you a, a launch user of the Switch? When did you pick up your first Switch for, for the kids? I want to say that was in around 2018. Uh, so I, I'm going to say that was a little over a year afterwards. Um, and I'm actually uh, bringing up a cheat sheet here uh, because the internet's great. And uh, I wanted to look at some of the day one titles over there because I, I that is a long time ago. And I remember very little about that. Uh, so I picked it up about a year in. Uh, I this is a great topic. I'm, I'm, I'm very interested to talk about this because I think it expands even beyond what Nintendo did with the switch, um, to earlier Nintendo consoles. I think, um, really what consoles have done in terms of, uh, exclusive, uh, launch exclusives and launch titles and why they're there. Uh, we had some commentary about this, I think last week when we were talking about Minecraft, and one of the one of the ideas that I believe first party titles uh, should adhere to is uh, evangelizing your platform, right? Like this is why you buy this box yes. and not that box. And so when we go to the idea of um, the uh, 
the launch titles. I, I think that perhaps even more so, right? And it is really showing that. I would say there's a special point for Nintendo, perhaps beyond everybody else's. And I think it's that Nintendo really, I, I'm going to say the Wii is a great place to start for this conversation. I'm sure I'm forgetting something, uh, uh, but I think when you mentioned Wii Sports being that launch title for the Wii and how incredibly popular it was. Do you remember if it was a pack-in, actually? I, I don't remember if Wii Sports was a pack-in or if, if you had to purchase it. I think it, it I was. I, I remember having a Wii and having the disc for Wii Sports and there was no case for it. So I do think that it was a, yeah. a pack-in that, you know, that was the first thing you could play when you got your Wii. Okay. So what I think that means to me... The Wii was an entirely different gaming modal, right? Like you you just were used to sitting on your behind on your couch in front of your television with a controller. We've talked about the complexity uh, off air, of course, we will probably bring that up one day, uh, but the complexity of controllers and how we started with the NES and how you just had a D-pad and really two buttons to speak of, plus your start and select. And here we are, you know, down the road and we've we've multiplied that, you know, uh, quite a bit. Um, the Wii changed that modal completely. I mean, you could get the Pro Controller. I am a staunch Pro Controller supporter for all of the Nintendo consoles since then because uh, my brain uh, doesn't fire as quickly. And uh, so I really want that 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 similar-shaped controller in my hand. Uh, but I think what was important there with the with Wii Sports is it was it was kind of the same idea as solitaire and and uh minesweeper in uh in windows right you you the reason you had that is because you had to teach your users how to click and drag and you had to right. teach them how to have precision with pointing um as much as it was also fun and people love solitaire and minesweeper to this day which makes them brilliant it is also a training tool it is getting your folks to to focus on how do I use this device so that everything else I do outside of this is going to be real easy to use. So I do believe that that is, is what Wii Sports was. So more than just launch titles, evangelizing the box that they want you to buy, usually Nintendo, uh, Microsoft, Sony, they'll do that with graphics and with great, you know, uh, art direction and, you know, and, and uh, just engaging visuals, I think, and sound uh, to start. Uh, it's probably fair to say that most launch titles are a little loose on the gameplay parts of things sometimes because they come in kind of hot around a, a console launch. But I'd say that Nintendo in particular also has had to, as they have changed um, the paradigm of what that console is under your television, truly in the case of the Switch, it's not even always under your television. You're carrying it with you as much as you're not. Um, some people use it exclusively in handheld. The the, the Switch Lite is only handheld. So I, I think uh, it's incumbent on them to train you how to use their devices. And, and so to get back to your original point, love the idea of this Switch Sports. And it's, I think Switch Sports particularly though, is more of a throwback, right? I, I think it's, it's, it's hearkening back to what the Wii did. Um, you can't play Switch Sports with a Nintendo Lite, for example, right? Like it is something you have to have, you know, the right. separate Joy-Cons for. And um, and uh, um, and you would want that on a big TV, right? You know, for, for multiple players and stuff, uh, no matter what the marketing materials from Nintendo would tell you. Um, so I, I think that maybe 
Um, now, now to the to the same point though, I, I would say that what was it called? One two switch, I think it was called, uh, right around launch there, um, and that was the thing that. Um, let you kind of use the controllers. It had like their HD rumble uh, yep. feature and let you kind of like feel like when you're rolling uh, marbles around in a box and, you know, all the, the technology they put to the HD rumble. I think that was, uh, that would have been a great pack in. I think that would even have evangelized the Switch a whole lot more um, because it would show the things it could do that nobody else could do. I think Labo was a great example of something that the Switch could do that nobody else could totally. do. Um, and so, those are things that I think evangelize the platform at the same time as also training you to know why this box is so different, you know? Um, and that is a job Nintendo has that I don't think Xbox has. I don't think PlayStation no, has. And they've always given themselves that challenge. I thought it was commendable with the Switch as opposed to the Wii that they gave developers a lot more freedom in how to use the console. And so... That was great because they've got a very robust indie store. A lot of Android game and mobile game devs have turned the Switch game store sort of into Steam Lite. You know, there's a ton of indie content there because at its heart, it is a traditional controller, a traditional mobile console that you can take apart and also use like a Wii. It's sort of brilliant in that, but that then puts more pressure on them because they're not requiring that you use these features on every game for the first party titles to make sure that they are getting used, that they are showcasing. Here are the things that you can do only on our platform rather than just being an Android Tegra OS with a controller strapped to it. And so, yeah, I think, sure. but that's a challenge that they've always made for themselves. And I think maybe switch what switch sports is saying is now there really are games that you must play in a certain way and that's okay if you don't want to you know if you're sitting in a car and you've got to play it in handheld mode then just don't play switch sports play any of the thousands of other games that we have they've got that they've got that maturity now where they can do that and maybe that held them back from having those pack-ins early on because they didn't quite know how people would use them you primarily are, are they going to use them in tabletop mode where it's set up, but these are detached. Are they going to use a dock to, on a big screen TV? Are they going to use it in handheld mode? And so they had more ground to cover versus the Wii, which only had the Wiimote and the Nunchuck. And that was the only way really to interact with it, bar, barring the Pro Control, which is sort of a secondary thought to those first party tie-in games. There's also, I guess, was Super Mario sure. Galaxy Wii or Wii U? Boy, I would put my money on Wii, Super Mario Galaxy. Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, Odyssey was Switch is... launch. And there was also Super Mario Sunshine. So one of those was Wii, one was Wii U. Wii. Okay. Galaxy was Wii. Yeah, which was, was an absolutely delightful Mario game. Not that any game in 30 plus years has not been a delight. They they know how to Mario, sure. Uh, for sure. Uh, yep. But yeah, I, it really took advantage of the motion controls and the ability to kind of wave around and get the stars and work in a smaller worlds, playing with gravity and doing some really interesting things that you could only do on the Wii. And they really did that one-to-one. -one. Uh, 
it is now packed in on the switch they reissued it which was great i didn't get to catch it in the first run but what's nice about the switch is you can also do all of the things that you did on the wii and you can do all of the things that you did on the wii u and it feels in a lot of the ways that sony and microsoft have coalesced on a controller over three generations four generations of consoles now where it is four buttons, two analog sticks, two triggers, two shoulder buttons uh, for both consoles. And some of that is the number of cross-platform titles that those two guys have versus the number that Nintendo has uh, sort of pushes them to have a common language. But they've continued to refine it in these smaller ways uh, with you know better rumble, better feel, small. And it's almost science at this point where we have an expectation that an Xbox controller is going to feel a certain way. And so any improvements that they're making are really around the fringes because they've kind of perfected the handheld controller. Hmm. Hmm. That's a great point. Specifically around the those peripherals too. You're right. I think uh, interesting uh, business considerations around that, I think. So for example, when I think about uh, the the Wii and you've got your Wiimotes and then a Pro Controller potentially, um, how that sort of changes the idea of what it's like to pick up and play, right? That you could, whereas with an Xbox Connect notwithstanding in the in the Connect eras, when you sit down, it's the same controller that you are going to pick up from the time you got that console at launch until you know you're moving on to the next console and here with the series x stuff because they're kind of changing that whole idea of hardware being a little bit more of this uh evolution like cell phones almost um bringing your xbox one's con- controllers with you right um some of the firmware upgrades actually even applying to xbox one controllers um or at least a subset of them that had bluetooth really uh sort of underscores this this very very different uh, approach to um, that, and I, I do, I do when I look at that and I compare that to Nintendo. I, I think one might lament the uh, potential lack of innovation because you're right. I mean, uh, Microsoft's also done a pretty uh, stellar job around back backwards compatibility and bringing a whole bunch of games forward. So it's really not even just the games that come out for the series consoles right now, right? And you're talking about stuff that came out you know, where, when the original console dropped, you know, and, you know, the, 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 uh, I don't know why I can't ever remember the game that you love so much. The, the one, um, Fusion yes. Frenzy. Thank you. Um, that was it. Fusion Frenzy. And, uh, you know, it has to run with Fusion Frenzy and it has to run with Halo Infinite. Right. So it's the same controller largely, you know, they, they, they had some, uh, creative decisions around those black and white buttons that were the little jelly beans that were on the Duke controller right. back in the day. Um, and then the, the, the S one, uh, but, uh, but really the, you know, they, they, you're right. They, this has become a largely iterative amount of changes across uh, controllers all the way through these generations. And that's a, that's a huge uh, uh, sort of anchor, right. Creatively um, in some ways, I, I feel incredibly comfortable about that. That is one less thing for me to learn. Um, Nintendo does have this unique challenge that every time they sort of reboot the idea of a console, that they are going to have to train everybody who wants to come along for the ride. Um, so there is certainly that piece, um, but they're very adept at that. I think every time, I think Wii Sports was so incredibly popular 
not simply because it was a training tool, but also because that was just a damn fun game and they knew right, how to right. make, you know, Nintendo always does that with their first party stuff, almost always does that with their first party stuff. Um, and so that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty big piece there. Um, as I, as I kind of think about that, I, I'll, I'll give Sony, uh, a, some, some, some good props here around, uh, the dual sense there on the, for the PlayStation five, uh, kind of incorporating the, the really neat, uh, the the uh uhd rumble if you want to call it you know (laughs) the even better rumble than what the 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 uh switch has uh really uh the fidelity out there is is pretty amazing i think sometimes like every new technology there's some gimmicky stuff that doesn't work as well as it does in in in, you know from this title to that title and uh particularly cross-platform stuff i i I had expected you know that that was going to be one of the uh, times when this would be just as much of a curse as a blessing for Sony because, you know, there's third-party developers that have multiple SKUs to ship on and they're, you know, they just want to throw some rumble in there and get it moving, you know, because that's what everybody else has, you know, from the PC to the Xbox to the Switch. So I do see that that, you know, was a, there might have been a bit of a challenge there for them, but but kudos to them to find a place inside of the controller to innovate right because you're right we 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 have gotten down to the science of controllers being this very specific uh uh, design that uh if you change too much you have the nintendo problem you will now have to change you have to train everyone um and it does affect backwards compatibility i bring that up as a as a as a point because if if that's important to you then if you if they came up with a brand new controller that looked like a dragon fruit that you held with this hand i mean it was a totally different thing that you've never seen before um and it was the coolest controller ever that's not really necessarily going to help you when you're trying to use when you're trying to play fusion frenzy right or halo infinite and like all these games are designed around this very specific controller um so in some ways you are asking the user base to own two controllers all of a sudden if they're going to have to to do that i mean that that is that potential challenge that they'd, they'd run into as well. Yeah, so. which I think gets back to you need to make that value proposition, whether you're Nintendo or you're Microsoft. When I think about first-party titles, I was really sort of riffing on this. And really, Nintendo has come to the side of Sony and Xbox with the Switch OLED. After five years, they've done a refresh. And historically, that's not something that Nintendo's really done. They don't generally go back and revisit their hardware, but I think, first of all, they've had a hit on an order of magnitude that they've never had with a console before. I mean, at least not in recent generations. You know, the GameCube, the Wii, the Wii U were always ancillary to the experience of uh, the bigger consoles, Uh, the PlayStation for many years, uh, the Xbox as it's gained popularity. And the Switch feels like it's in just about every household I ask about gaming and in a lot of households, it's now their primary gaming rig. It's affordable. It's adaptable. It more or less works online as absolute garbage. I hope I'm not offending anybody by saying that, but it's just not a good experience to link up with and play with friends online. But you know, for an owner of two small children, I don't exactly mind that because I can feel safe that sure. absent and filling out several forms in triplicate and sending out codes, they're not going to find their way into any trouble. Uh, it, but I think part of having these other controllers, and we're still seeing innovation in 
VR where it's the wild west in terms of what kind of controllers, what kind of hand controls, two digits. Uh, we're still making progress. But the other thing is, I noticed with the Series X and the PS5, and I think we talked about this, launch titles sort of didn't matter in a sense because the one thing that you're trying to accomplish as a first party is you want to have enough games on the platform that people will buy a new platform until you get to the point where you have enough people on the platform that you can tell developers, look at all of these people who will play your game if you build it for this platform. And mostly on Microsoft's side with the series, because all of the Xbox One titles were immediately compatible, they didn't really have to do that. People could buy the consoles or not buy the consoles. Developers were still making Xbox One titles and they could optimize them. They could up-res things to get sort of that very early launch bump. I think they did that when they launched the Xbox One too, where there were a lot of titles that were not really Xbox One focused, but they were very much 360 titles that had been up-resed and uh, built to launch. And it was a solid year before we started seeing some of the real marquee titles happening. And I think that's the other thing that you gain if you're Sony or you're Microsoft and you're iterating each generation. Sony doesn't have the level of backwards compatibility that Microsoft does, but on the back end, they still have the development environment that a developer can say, I'm going to make this PS5 game similar to my PS4 game. I'm just going to change some assets out. I'm not starting from scratch. And so they don't really have to solve that hard problem with purely first-party titles to get people in. Yeah, and it's such an interesting debate uh, around this. I I, I will say that kind of chewing a bit on uh, how Sony originally posited their uh, PlayStation 5 launch versus how Xbox uh, posited theirs. And there was a... Uh, Jim Ryan uh, from Sony uh, had a had a had a blurb that was taken. I'll just take it out of context from whatever interview it was in, where he was saying, you know, we believe in generations. We believe that there's a there's a separation from a PS4 and a PS5. These are different consoles, you know, as we move forward. Um, and Microsoft is doing exactly the opposite, right? In, in, in terms of, uh, uh, changing, you know, the, um, I think I brought it up the other week that, that, a really cool, uh, demo where they have Crimson Skies running, uh, and the actual disc for Crimson Skies put into a original Xbox, a 360 and Xbox one and a series X all, you know, all, all, and they're all system linked together and they're, they're playing, you know, uh, dog fighting on the, on the same land. And so for them, they, they really want this, kind of contiguous idea of, of your game library, you know, coming forward as much as, as they've been able to. And, and, uh, I hope to see that continue as much as it, it seems like they're, 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 uh, uh, whether they need to, or they've chosen to, they're, they're pulling back just a small bit on it now. Um, still an amazing effort, of course, but, but there's still more niche titles I'd love to have seen come to that, uh, backwards compatibility, uh, initiative. But I think, I think the, the, argument um that that has come up and uh, i do see it i do understand why it's brought up is that when you go out to spend five hundred dollars uh or more and uh you know either go to the best buy or in your case in the That's back somebody's trunk in a dark alleyway um to get your console uh when you 
get this thing home at great cost and uh, uh, upon just a of your tiny person bit when you, of, uh, when you yeah, just a little bit of them. life threat. It's fine. I got a new ID. Uh, I am living under production right now. Probably shouldn't have a podcast now that I'm thinking about it, but that's fine. Let's move on. <laughs> I, I really wish i had the ability in riverside to just cut your feed the comedic timing would be perfect uh, but uh yeah so i i think when you spend 500 dollars on these brand new devices you want to you want to feel like that investment did something yeah. right like that you didn't literally just swap it out for this year's phone but that it did something um and the hardware delta between, speaking specifically to this last generation with PS4 to PS5, uh, Xbox One to Series uh, X, is 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 great. That's a huge change. Uh, the the SSDs alone, I would just just fundamentally change uh, what the experience is on consoles and on some games. Uh, we I think you and I talked off air about uh, Forza and uh, Forza Four. Uh, um, love that game. I I think that the loading times around Forza Four. I didn't realize how much that made me not want to play that game sometimes um, to get into. And even though once you got into the open world, there was some less loading uh, going on, but still some noticeable hiccups here and there. And when they patched that for the series consoles, um, it's such an arcade experience all of a sudden, right? It just feels so much snappier to get you in and out of the experience and just uh, respecting your time, right? As a player. Um, and then, you know, that doesn't even touch on uh, the great advances in sound and graphics and, uh, you know, compute power, right? Like just a, a huge thing. So you spend all this money on a device that is vastly superior to the last generation. Um, and how transformative is it to go from the uh, Forza 4 that you played last year to the Forza 4 you're playing this year? Um to me, those loading times are big. Quick resume, huge shout out for quick, quick resume on, on, on the Xbox to just come back a week later and see that it's I'm sitting at the same garage yep. I was before and I just jump right back in. And that's transformative to me as somebody who needs to sometimes be judicial about the amount of time I'm able to even play games. But but uh, I think that that's a, 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 an important distinction to make, right? And I think when Sony made that distinction initially, uh, they were saying, you know, almost implicitly, like you, you do want to see the fancier new thing when you buy the fancier new thing, you want to see why you bought it. You want to see the excitement. Um, my, my, uh, my, uh, stepbrother, he, uh, <laughs> when I, when I had gotten my, uh, series X right around the launch window there, um, he, he wanted to see what it could do. He that was his first question. he wanted to see, well, show me what the series X does. I want to see. And, uh, I didn't really have a lot to load up to show him what the fancy shiny new graphics would look right. like, right? Like the the visceral bump uh, that goes along with this investment. I didn't have that for him. Um, I got to show him quick resume. I got to show him how quickly things load. I got to show him a, a much sharper picture in some uh, uh, instances for a handful of things that did get patched in and around the launch window uh, to take advantage of some of that new hardware. But uh, what I didn't have for him was the new Zelda game or the new Last of Us game, the new Halo game, the new Gears game, the thing that just made the 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 sale just by looking at it, you know, the breathtaking graphics. So um 
so it's an interesting thing, right? Like what, what, uh, and I think it does hover around that concept of, of what, what your launch titles are, what your launch window, uh, needs to be. Um, you know, I, I think kind of famously they pushed, uh, Halo Infinite back a year, right? Like that Halo Infinite was supposed yeah. to be around the launch window for the Xbox and they just straight up needed more, more time. The pandemic obviously made all of this a whole bunch more challenging for a whole bunch more people, a lot of people working from home and, you know, all the logistics and then the supply chain to actually get consoles in people's hands, um, you know, which, you know, just on the face of the business of it all, why do you, you know, if you can, if less consoles are being sold because they can't even get them out of the factory, then why develop for that platform, right? Like truly, I mean, and, and there's just a, as much as it hurts me to say that out loud, because I do want to see the shiny new thing, there's just business sense around that, yeah. you know, if there's 50 million consoles of the previous generation, that's what yeah, you and, and you could have probably stalled the launch. Uh, I, I do want to jump on. We're trying to be very self-aware and uh, move through our yeah. Our topics uh but yeah i think just to kind of bookend that the one thing that first party titles do around launch and i think you're highlighting it very well is those of us who are going into back alleys and offering non-essential organs to purchase black market xboxes we are the sales team for xbox or for playstation you know, anybody who's going to go at launch and stand in line put up their tent those are the people who are going to be talking about the good of it just because human nature is if there's something that you love you want other people to love it too and so you don't have to be a skilled salesperson to feel that inertia and want to show your stepbrother the shiny new thing and so i do think that even though we're living in this sort of post-generational economy. And I think Sony is going to come around to it too, as much as they speak virtuous cycles and generational lines and all of that. I, I do think that we're living in an era where the pace of technology is moving so quickly that it's foolish to lock in a console cycle for five years because you can make these incremental updates. Uh, chips are getting faster in ways that 10 years ago just wasn't the case. And there was a real value proposition to getting a new console and knowing that you were going to have excellent targeted hardware. And even if it wasn't the fastest, even if it wasn't going to keep up with PCs, it was going to be something that developers could target reliably in a way that would let them eke out every last bit of juice that they couldn't with your PC because they didn't know what pairing of graphics card and RAM and CPU you had. And they've got the whole stack right there with the console. And now we're moving to that post-generational thing. You still need the glam. You still need the Wii Sports, which is, it's not graphical, but you bring a friend over to see the Wii for the first time and you hand them this little stick and say, go bowl. And they're swinging their arms around the living room. The fun is immediately there. And if you're going to be a AAA console like the Xbox, like the PlayStation, I do think that you need the stepbrother test, something that's just going to you know, be the 3D mark of games for launch to say, oh my God, I need that in my own house. Uh, so I think that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of sales, this is my segue. I wanted to talk a little bit, we're a couple episodes deep, uh, about who we are, why we're doing this, uh, I think we might have talked about this on our first beta episode, which has been buried and will never be published. So I want to rehash. I want to ask you what brought you to think podcasting. I'm going to give my own thoughts. 
but why are we here? Uh, why are these people listening to us? Okay, I'll give it a shot. Uh, another shot. You're right. I think we we talked a small bit uh, about it uh, initially, uh, and I, I I I will call back to some of the things that 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 uh, that I spoke to uh, in that beta episode. Uh, hopefully, expand on it a little bit more articulately now that I get a second shot. Uh, I, I I think that first off, at the top. Uh, You've mentioned this so uh, as we've started moving through our our intros and and kind of refining our our uh, our, our format. Uh, you and I do this and have done this for more than half of our lives, where we take all these topics: video games, movies, TV shows, technology, um, more recently politics, uh, and uh, we chop this up over the phone, uh, over some delicious pizza, uh, over tons and tons and tons of coffee and, uh, and kind of unpack some of these things in, uh, if I may uh, have a mild bit of egotistical, uh, self for a moment. Uh, uh, I think we do a great job of being a bit insightful about some of those things. Um, when we do it together, I, I think that uh, I'll 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 definitely uh, pass this compliment to you that I I have uh, thought much deeper about these topics uh, when I know that I'm going to talk to you right. about them, and uh, I get to unpack them. I, I feel like uh, you have held me very accountable to a lot of the uh, the things that we talk about, uh, and uh, asked me to kind of plumb the depths of the topic a bit more and think about it and why there's something I like, why there's something that I don't like, um, uh, which is important because we're both very curmudgeonly about things sometimes. And I, I think it's, uh, it's a terrific, uh, uh, sort of uh, litmus test that we have to hold each other to, uh, when we're, we're talking about some of these uh, topics. So, uh, I feel like that insightfulness, uh, lends itself very well to, uh, hopefully landing somewhere in the middle of, uh, of objectivity, um, even though that's almost uh, scientifically impossible uh, when it's just two of us. But, um, but I do think that um, taking some of the viewpoints that we have had about, about these various things and, and kind of um, using one another as, as uh, sharpening tools to, to, to get to something a little bit better than what might just be dancing around in our head about these things that we love. Um, and I think that also dovetails into the fact that we love all of these things. I absolutely love gaming and movies and TV shows. Um, uh, I, I I have mentioned this to you before, and I I don't know where I picked this up. I, I'm sure it was something I read a long time ago, uh, either on the internet or in in print. But uh, uh, the idea that society way back when you get into tribal times, uh, the way that information was passed along, um, was done through, uh, through stories, right. Um, and you had folks in the tribe that were, uh, that was their job was to, was to, uh, transmit history and lessons and parables through stories, um, that was entertainment. Um, these stories could be very fantastical, but they would also have messages um, that they, they could be extremely deep. They could be very funny. They could be uh, uh, romantic. They could be all these things that that stories can be. Um, but it also transmitted uh, information um, throughout the throughout the, the that that sector of society of that tribe. And as we as society itself has changed, and it certainly has, continues to. I think that. It, 
one of the potentially beautiful things um, is for us to look on these uh, these mediums, right, of movies and TV shows and and video games, uh, books. I'm sure uh, we'll unpack a book or two here here and there. Um, things that we enjoyed. Um, I think that those things too will um, they have become these those sort of uh, uh, tribal stories for us because we don't do that anymore. I mean, society has become in some ways extremely fragmented, uh, and uh, I think that that's the way that we pass on moral lessons. I think that's the way we pass on humor. It's the way we pass on things uh, in our current society. Um, and, uh, it's the reason that I love them outside of them just having the intrinsic value of entertainment. I, I, I think that the reason they're so valuable to me is because they do teach me things they teach me things. Um, I, I don't know that we'll get to unpack, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, last episode of, uh, Mrs. Maisel. Um, but, uh, you and I, uh, talked about, uh, Lenny Bruce and his, uh, his, uh, his, his bit at the end there. And, uh, what a beautiful way of, of, uh, talking about just doing the work and showing up, you know? Um, and, uh, uh, so to kind of make it almost circular in a way, like this is us doing the work, right. And this is us, uh, uh, just getting out there. You know, we've, we've had these conversations with the mic off. You said it so eloquently in one of our, uh, our opening packages before. And, and, uh, I want, I want to turn the mic on now. I think, I, I think we have things to offer. I, I love that. That dovetails a lot into why I was so, so gung ho doing this myself. Uh, I'll follow you into just about any fire. And when you first said, you know, we should start podcasting, I looked at the six tracks of the album that I'm very much trying to write and whimpered a little bit. And I think we're going to get to that this year uh, for sure as well. And I think Maisel has a really interesting arc in it. And, you know, it's an Amazon Prime show. All of the episodes are available. You can stream it. Uh, so I'm um, going to talk freely about it because it, there's just got to be an end of life date on spoilers. And I don't think I'm going to spoil anything because it's just conversations that they're having. But the thing in the first season that made me fall in love with that show as a musician and uh, by way of background, you know this, some of our audience doesn't. Uh, I'm a lawyer by profession, but my entire life has been dedicated to music. Uh, music school is my underground, uh, undergrad experience i pursued it professionally decided i also needed to support my family and so i went back to school but that's never left me and so the artistry and the focus on practicing and learning a craft has always been something that has followed me sometimes as a motivator oftentimes as an albatross around my neck and the thing in Maisel, very early on in the first season there's one of the most loving to the craft montages I've ever seen when she's first working and getting her tight 10. And it shows in ways that most other shows that deal with this, they might show a new artist getting up, performing, bombing, getting back out there and doing it. But I never saw a show prior to this that really touched on just how much it's practicing, just how much it is not so much about bombing, but about constant iterative improvement. And that's been something that I've always struggled with. The, my dad was also a musician professionally. And so my experience and my relationship with music and practice was formed by this very old world view that, you know, if it was 
eight o'clock, it was time for me to practice. And if it was eight o five and I wasn't practicing, there'd be hell to pay. And so even going to a conservatory for college, I saw some of my friends really accelerate. You know, they use that time when you have this four year window as a musician where you're in school for music. This is the only thing you have to do. And they'd go, they would get up at eight in the morning and they'd still be in the practice rooms at eight at night, not interrupting. Maybe they'd stop to grab a bite. Maybe they wouldn't. And I would say I loved life. I did not practice. I, I definitely played, and you know, firsthand to my musical knowledge and ability grew exponentially uh, through osmosis, through trial and error. But I also found out that there are girls that are wonderful. Uh, you know, there's things to do in the city. I was, uh, you know, an 18 year old kid living on my own for the first time in Philadelphia. And it was a lot of fun. I was not practicing 12 hours a day, five days a week, seven days a week. And my relationship with practice and with grit in general has always been one that I've struggled with uh, professionally, personally, in my artistry. One of the reasons I'm struggling to actually record an album is it's very easy for me to see the big picture and it's very difficult for me to practice those steps to get there, to do the thing week after week that whether you're going to the gym or you're starting a diet or you're learning another language, there's only so much that you can do simply by showing up and the rest has to be deliberate. And so when you approach me with this project, it has all of those makings of being something that you do or do not. There is no try, as a small green alien once famously told us almost 50 years ago now. Mm -hmm. And with a podcast, we're making a commitment to doing something weekly. And so every Thursday, you and I are going to get together. We're going to record. We're going to go home. We're going to edit. We're going to produce it. Before that, we're going to come up with show topics. We're going to talk about it. And there's accountability between you and I that I wouldn't have if I was just sitting down at the piano to work on a song or lay down a track because I can distract myself. I can walk away. If I don't show up for this, there's an empty microphone where I'm supposed to be and an annoyed brother of 25 years and vice versa. And so it's like having a gym buddy. Uh, you know, it's the same sort of thing where, you know, we're just going the same time every day or every week and we're going together. And if I don't really feel like going, I could probably whine about it and come up with some wonderful excuses about how somebody stole my kidney to give me an Xbox. But you know me better than most people and you would know exactly when I'm on my BS and when it's something legitimate. And so for me, having this project is a much as much about doing it and learning and making the commitment that each episode we can do is going to be the best episode we've ever done because we are learning on the fly. We've got a, a fancy soundboard by our side and we know how to fix things in post and you know, we're researching which apps to use and what equipment. But we're also very unlike myself because I will frequently get mired in the, well, we can't possibly record because I don't have the right microphone or the right interface. And instead, we're just effing doing it, man. We are going in there and we are going to record. And if it sounds like crap, we will fix it next time. And, you know, it's interesting because from our beta to our first episode, our listeners doubled and we're starting to eke past the number of people who I personally know and can bludgeon into listening to our podcast. And so that's hello out there. 
if I don't know you, hi. Uh, but, you know, that's kind of cool. And like, that's <laughs> exciting. And that also increases that accountability because you know, our significant others and parents and friends are going to listen even when we're falling flat on our face. But then you start seeing these other people showing up that are interested in what we have to say, or at least in what we had in the episode description. And that creates even more accountability because that makes it less likely that we're just going to bail on it or stop doing it because there's actually people out there that are listening. And that doesn't mean that they won't go on to five other podcasts if we disappear, but it creates that feedback loop. And I think that's so important in so many things and having something in your life that you're passionate about. And uh, I am sure as this podcast progresses, we're going to go deep into the fact that the topics that we've chosen uh, should all be on one another's shoulders. And in a moment, you know, I want to shift into talking about some of the movies and TV shows that we've been enjoying. But when I started posting our podcast different feeds, there's no gaming category. There's tech, there's pop culture, there's TV and movies, but there is no, at least in Apple Podcasts and Spotify and some of the big distributions, um, Overcast, there's no specific area for gaming. So if we wanted to say, well, what do we talk about? We talk about media. And to me, media means movies, TV, video games, uh, VR, all of the stuff that we want to consume. Uh, we add some tech into it. And a lot of the tech that we talk about is gaming focused. Some of it's not, but it's kind of related to these interests. To this day in 2022, the stories, to get back on your point about the fact that we've always been as a species, a storytelling species, and sometimes we tell stories because a message needs to be conveyed with emotion more than it just needs to be conveyed, conveyed with facts, games are still not quite respected on that level. And in a future episode in the next couple of weeks, I want to talk about Halo. I kind of want to let a couple more episodes bake in. But some people are blowing me up about Halo knowing that I like video games and they're discovering it for the first time with this Showtime show and they're sci-fi fans and they probably love the games. Uh, Halo 2's storyline and the way they wove the narrative between two very different characters on the opposite sides of a war uh, was really monumental for me at the time. And in the same breath, I'm really happy that they're not following the games in the show. I, I think there's some intelligence there mm -hmm. because there are some things that they can do in live action, some things that they can't do in live action that they can do in a game. Uh, all of that to get back to, for me, this is about the exercise of doing it, of getting our ideas and our takes out there. But it's also about the things that I really want to evangelize that I think so many of the people I love, so many of the people I know, and so many of the people I haven't met yet don't necessarily see in the way we see them uh, when we're talking about some of this media and some of this pop culture, that it's not just for digestion. There are messages there and there's actual art getting made today that is just as valid as art that was made 200 years ago. And it's not more important because it's uh, a symphony or an opera and less important because it's a video game. Those stories are timeless and important and I want to push them. So that that that's a that's a that's a terrific uh 
That's going to be a terrific segue into everything everywhere all at once. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, before we move on, though, I did want to get um, you had talked. I remember us being in the parking lot of Wawa. Um, this is most. This I is don't most of why my we were waiting. But okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so very specifically, the one time that we were in a Wawa, and only that time, and never again, um, in the parking lot of a Wawa, and. You spoke about um, a book. I think you had either started it or had skimmed it, um, and it was um, Ten Thousand Hours. Malcolm you talked about Outliers, mastery yeah. in Ten Thousand Hours. That is, yep, that's the one. Okay, um, and I would love for you to just super quick blurb about that and kind of how it kind of dovetails into you're seeing the big picture and then delving into the details of mastery and that kind of stuff. And then I promise we'll move on to you got movie it. Review. So it, the book outliers, and I'm pretty sure it's outliers and Malcolm Gladwell, uh, he studies people like Bill Gates and Steve jobs and what made them spectacular. And he goes into people in professional sports and acting and the basic thesis is that there's a 10,000 hour rule that it takes approximately 10,000 hours to really learn the mastery of a musical instrument, a craft, anything that you're going to do. And that there's really no shortcut to that greatness. And so when he talks about Bill Gates and it's been many years since I've read the book. And so some of this may be just, apocryphal paraphrasing all over the place, but I'm going to do the best I can because it's what I've internalized. And so if I internalized it wrong, then, well, that's Malcolm's fault, not mine. So, so he talks about the thing that was special about Bill Gates was that he had very early access to a mainframe computer on a college campus as a kid. And so the thing about Bill Gates isn't that he was smarter than everybody else or more gifted, but he had that opportunity to start those 10,000 hours earlier than anybody else in a way where at that time in the 60s or early 70s when he was coming of age, most of the people had access to computers were 50-year-old college professors, were people who were already kind of past that and weren't going to hit that. So that let him get that jump start and spend those 10,000 hours so that by the time he was building basic and uh, forming Microsoft out of the gate and making these deals, he already had so much substance expertise that he was way beyond it. Uh, And that sort of dovetails away from the book, but into that deliberate practice. Uh, There's a uh, saxophonist uh, by the name of David Liebman, who a lot of people who know jazz music will know. And he, did a masterclass for our school while I was there and was actually one of my friends was his student. So we drove up to Northeast PA to actually drive him down for the masterclass. And it was sort of a bootleg masterclass. The university didn't want to have him. So we found a local club and actually put it on ourselves and it was really well attended. And he talked a lot about, for him, he went off at one point in his early 20s, I think, to a cabin in the woods that a family member owned. And again, I may be misquoting him on this. I don't think he's one of our early listeners, but you know, somebody can correct me. But what he did is he just went away for six months and he did nothing but practice. And he always said that that was when he mastered his craft, that there was no other time in his life because once you come out of that once you come out of that cabin, 
life takes over and maybe you'll get three or four hours in a good day to practice and do things, but you'll never have that massive run with six months and nothing to do but to perfect your craft. So he sort of did it all at once, but with the 10,000 hour rule, it's basically the idea that those people who are phenoms start earlier. Uh, some classic musicians are pushed into that direction by their parents at a very early age. Uh, the Williams sisters are another great example of kids who are started on tennis at a super young age by a father that so supported them greatly and kind of pulled them along. And to get to that level of mastery, to get that competitive edge, there's no shortcut to doing the work. And the thing that makes these outliers, at least according to the thesis of that book, so exceptional is that they got their chunk and were actually able to do it before life got in the way. And the needs of shelter and life and having a job didn't get in the way of them getting all of those hours. And I think 10,000 hours works out to roughly like five years of full-time work. And so, you know, the other way to look at it is when we have jobs, people who become experts in their jobs have usually worked in their field for about five years. And so that's kind of a, a soft way to see that. But yeah, I think podcasting, doing music, talking about art, all of it, you need to do it deliberately to get good at it. And anybody listening to us today, we're getting good at it. We're going to get good. We're not there yet. We're getting good. So that's it. everything, that's it. everywhere, all at once. Very small topic. Yeah, for sure. Very small topic. Yes, yes. It was highly specific. Uh, so uh, got to uh, see that this past weekend. Uh, and uh, I will um, I'll try to keep relatively spoiler light. It's really tough with movie reviews as I think about it when you're when you're just trying to wrap up two hours of a movie and, and uh, a portion of that is going to be you talking about it. And, and so, you know, how much can you talk about a thing uh, before you start getting into too deep into specifics? So mild spoiler warning for folks that want to go in completely clean. Um, I will try to keep, you know, everything kind of loaded into the very, very early on setup and, and not really anything about, you know, how, how everything unfolds and where everything goes. Um, premise of it is, uh, starts out, uh, Michelle Yeoh, uh, martial arts phenom, uh, over here in the States. Uh, I, her big breakout over here for what folks might re recognize her in would be uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Um, lots and lots of uh, 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 experience in cinema uh, around that, but that that's certainly a, a kind of a, 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 a central pillar to uh, what people might recognize her from. Uh, she uh, is married, um, has a daughter, um, runs uh, a uh, laundromat. Um, gosh, I want to say it was in LA. I don't remember that i i know where it was i want to say la but uh, let's just say a major city i don't actually remember that i don't that's i don't think that's uh, germane to the story um and uh uh kind of starts out and she's you know uh you know they own that business kind of uh struggling a little bit financially trying to figure out what they need to do there uh the her father um you find out nice and early on um is uh he uh, they hail from China. Um, he, uh, actually, uh, comes home. He, uh, and by home, I mean, he comes over to the States. He was home in China. He, he and, and he comes home or he comes to live in their home uh, in the States because, uh, his health is ailing, um, all super early stuff here. And, uh, from that point, from that point, it, uh, 
uh, the, and they're they're uh, what they need to do again. This is co first couple minutes of the movie. They're going to the IRS uh, uh, tax auditing office, what have you, um, to kind of go over their business and uh, what they can claim as business expenses and how they can basically survive a an audit from the uh, from the IRS. Um, and so that's how the movie kicks off extremely early. Again, first couple of minutes. Very quickly, uh, it takes a, 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 a pretty hard right turn uh, into um, at least sci-fi. Uh, I'm going to say at least sci-fi. It goes in a whole bunch of different directions. Uh, I think uh, the themes that this movie kind of touches on, uh, which makes it an outstanding segue from our, our last uh, uh, topic, is uh, the idea of what the choices in someone's life will bring them to. Um, and uh, I think looking at the trailers, you can see some of this where um, there's some exploration in the movie about um, what life would have been like if uh, specifically uh, Michelle Yeoh, her character, um, would have made different choices much earlier on, much earlier on in her life. Um, and, um, it's represented beautifully visually um, and with kind of a sci-fi bend. Um, and they it, it's uh, and there's even these little devices you'll see later on in the movie where um, it's like a a, a grid um, or just really a, a smattering of of uh, of uh, tens of hundreds of dots. Um, um, and all of these are different junction points, if you will, of choices um, that a person can make in their life. Um, and so, do you go on this trip or don't you? Do you get into this relationship with the person or you don't? Um, and every choice that you make and the pivot point that it makes uh, brings you farther and farther down, you know, what your life would look like. Um, and uh, it is it is fascinating. There is a there's a great part um, during it where um, uh, the choice is uh, that uh, uh, she has made that bring her to this laundromat where she's married and has a daughter um, in America could have been incredibly different if she had just made one choice differently uh, much earlier in her life. Um, and they explore a little bit about that in the movie um, quite a bit. It's a, it's one of the pivot points of the movie, actually. Um, truly, truly interesting movie. Um, I, I think it, it, uh, uh, to talk about some of the stuff that I love about uh, the medium of movies and interactive storytelling, I I, I will say that there's a there's a great uh, reflection on um, on what uh, what regret is um, in choices that you do and don't make in life, um, and uh, I think that that uh, and then uh, some for some of the characters anyway. So this sort of kind of full circle celebration of the choices you did make, um, I think is, uh, is, is kind of part of the narrative there. Um, there is, uh, I will say for as deep and as heady, um, as this movie gets, and it really does, it deals with, uh, uh, I, I don't want to say time travel exactly, but it, it in as much as it, it talks about different um, strings of, of, of how a person's life could, could turn out, um, you know, I guess you could call it time travel from a certain perspective. Um, but it, it um, for as heady as some of the concepts get, and it does get pretty, pretty wild. Um, there are some I, I don't know another word for it, some zany moments in this movie. Uh, uh, there is, uh, I had 
at the time I, I, I had flip-flopped on the idea of uh, uh, bringing my 13 uh, year old son uh, with me. Uh, I'm glad I did not do that. Uh, there's a couple of uh, moments in there, you know, everybody's mileage varies on what they're comfortable with, with their, with their, their kiddos. Um, there's some things that are a little bit sexually charged um, uh, that are in the, in, in there, in the movie and uh, not just relationship and actual sexual innuendo, but, but, you know, just uh, some more lewd stuff around, you know, devices and things like that people might use uh some pretty pretty stark stuff that comes up on screen and and for me uh i think in when i when i go to watch a movie or a tv show or, or a game play a game or anything I, I think the zanier part of fiction to me i, I don't identify with very well uh i i i uh i like all my you know, not all of them. I like a good portion of my, my, my dramas to be real brooding and, and, you know, upsetting and, you know, all the, the, the kind of heaviness uh, that goes along with things that are supposed to be very serious. You did you know? recommend Ripper Street and, to uh, me. So we'll hit on that because my goodness. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That one doesn't pull a whole, whole ton of punches, right. Um, for the occasional smile that you get in that show, it's, it, it gets quite dour. I think and, it's gas. Um, and that is that is definitely it's that's, that's what it is yeah it, it, and i i feel like i feel like that's where my you know that's my wheelhouse i i love that that part of drama quite a bit um and so this movie with some of the 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 kind of shocking imagery and and there's just some outside of the sexual bits like there's there's also uh there's just some zany silly parts too um I, I, it was shocking to me, A, how much I loved it, how I walked out of it and just truly loved this this movie, um, but also that that stuff didn't actually affect uh, my my uh, my my understanding, my acceptance, and the joy that I came away from that 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 movie uh, having. I, I thought it was uh, it's a it's such a singular effort in terms of of getting to the point of of that uh, celebration of the life you have um, and understanding the life you don't um, that I think all of that stuff just becomes a seasoning uh, all of a sudden, as opposed to just being the reason for, for the movie. Um, and, and maybe that's why it's, it's pretty fundamentally different from other zany movies that I would just, uh, you know, dismiss out of hand. Um, highest recommendation. Um, you know, there are a couple of sensitive bits there again around some of the sexual stuff, but outside of that, I, um, I could not, I could not stress enough how, uh, how beautiful the message is by the end of that movie, um, and how moving it is. Um, there's a creative hunger. Um, I will make a real quick commentary about this too. I, I read an article on Polygon, I believe it was, uh, where the director, um, there's a scene without spoiling the scene or anything about it there, um, where there's, um, a whole bunch of, uh, apes on, on, on screen. And, uh, he, um, it turns out that he is actually the director of the of the movie is actually dressed in an ape costume and he is almost every single one of the apes in that scene um and so they filmed him in this ape costume bouncing around rocks and being around in this 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 area um and got you know however much footage and then digitally composited all of the different apes into this scene so it looked like there was a lot of them in the one scene um and so I, I, as silly as that might sound like it's like there's this creativity that that the director had that uh you know and and he said just straight up he said we had two ape 
costumes. That's all we had. So it wasn't like, uh, you know, he was just going to go out and buy a whole bunch more ape costumes for this one thing, but he wanted this scene a very certain way. And so he was thirsty enough for that scene so that he was going to chase it um, creatively, right? Like he was still going to have the scene he wanted to have in this, in this moment of the movie. And uh, I just think that's super cool. That's a, you know, that, that shows that he, he had such a, a specific vision, you know, and he wasn't willing to, to, uh, to, 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 to shy away from that vision. Um, it is a medium budget movie. Um, and yet I think given the, bu- that medium budget, um, they do some outstanding things in terms of, uh, filming special effects and so on and so forth. And I think it's because of that hunger. I, I, um, I think that, that also, it, it, it comes, it sizzles right off the screen. You can tell all of his creativity, even when it's zany as hell. Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's really a super impressive thing. Everybody I, I love it. it. I, I'm going to race to figure out how to see it as somebody who knows absolutely nothing about it i really want to learn how this laundromat owner's life choices could have led her to a room full of apes so (laughs) i I think that's absolutely the best spoiler free review i've heard in a while and yeah i I think it's an interesting commentary and i'm i'd be interested to know you saw it in theaters it's still doing an exclusive theater run and we've been two years now in a theater-less world. And I think for sure there's going to be a, uh, there's going to be an inflection point on what the role of the movie theater is in big production, small production films moving forward. Uh, You lived in Texas for many years. And for many years, my best experience in a movie theater was going with you to an Alamo draft house. And I've, you know, I've always been, movie theater agnostic most of the movies i've gone to i've gone to a few with the, my wife uh but mostly i've gone with you to see something that we just really positively had to see big event movies lord of the rings that kind of thing watching uh was it the hobbit that we saw in the 60 frames per second uh where our very close friend had to vomit the entire time it was, yeah, it was in 3D and it was 48 right. frames That's a second. It yeah, yeah, it was double frame rate. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. the result of that notwithstanding, I've always been of the mindset that I have a very nice TV at home. I can pause it. I can make whatever snacks uh, I want to have uh, and you know enjoy that experience. And so if I'm going to a movie, there's a social aspect of it, which is uh, going with you, experiencing something that we just can't get otherwise. But there's also an experiential element. And prior to the pandemic, I feel like with the exception of Alamo Drafthouses and some of these other theaters that are, you know, serving food and giving you B-movie footage before the film to kind of get you hyped up for what you're going to see that's all sort of on brand instead of 30 minutes of trailers, 30 minutes of advertisements before you get to see your movie, that a lot of the big theater chains were sort of asleep at the wheel. And now there's been a reckoning. It was not a reckoning that the market planned. There was a pandemic and a lot of theaters closed. And to get people back out to movie theaters, yes, some production houses are starting to honor their contracts again with exclusive timed runs in theaters only. But that's not really a money-making endeavor when you own HBO Max, when you own Amazon, when you own some of these production houses. And at the same time, you have Amazon and Netflix original movies that are going in reverse and are just as high production as some of the theatrical releases that we're seeing. Uh, so I wanted to 
circle back on this, which is a zany, complex movie. What I've heard, I really want to see. What was the theater experience like for you? Uh, was it packed? Were people cheering along? Did you feel connected? Or was it something that you just wanted to see it and didn't want to wait for it to come out? So you, that's the only way to do it. Um, mostly, mostly the latter here, um, got to see a good friend of mine, uh, uh, and visited, um, this, uh, over this past weekend. And, uh, so it was, uh, so it was just, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, we got to, uh, we got to do, it was just a, you know, an event to go do. And we, we just hadn't really, you know, hadn't, hadn't, uh, uh, opportunity to catch up in a while uh, we both were interested in the movie so it was mostly just not wanting to wait because we were so excited about this particular movie um and the trailers that we had seen and how you know mystifying the trailers were um uh so uh so i think what was interesting um uh about it though is uh the i want to say it was a cinemark i think it was a cinemark Gosh, it's, you're right. The, outside of That's Alamo right. Draft Houses, they are interchangeable to me. Um, so I, I think it was a Cinemark. Um, wasn't particularly packed at all. I mean, it was me and the two guys I went with, but it, it, it wasn't particularly packed at all. Um, I um, I have found that, largely speaking, um, with a couple of exceptions in my entire life of going to movies, and I've gone to a lot of movies long before the Alamo Draft House, and certainly since uh, having gone when I was in Texas. Uh, I think um, that one of the things about Alamo Drafthouse in particular, not to turn this into an Alamo Drafthouse ad, but anytime we talk about it, we're probably going to do that because it is a great place. Um, I remember going with you one time and I, I think it was, let me do this really quick. Uh, sorry, everyone. This probably plays really poorly on the, no, the uh, your, but your typing sounds a, great. That's podcast. what we get with condenser microphones. That's it. That's it. That's why I got this compressor. I wanted them. I want That's the it. pop, the punch of every key. Clickety I really clackety, to come through. Um, so clickety clackety. The, I, I, and I, and then I'm, while I'm doing that, yeah, also that. And yes, that's right. Okay. So it was, yeah. Okay, so when we went, um, just just verifying some facts there, so that I, I remembered exactly what we were we were bringing up. So we had uh, Alamo Drafthouse does a fantastic job of you go to a movie and then just before that movie they have a bunch of pre roll. You you alluded to it of of uh, uh, some things that might allude to what the movie is going to be about, or you know the stars of that movie, maybe some footage of them being in other things or YouTube videos or something. You know to kind of keep thematically like this whole thrust i mean they have menu items because they have a full service menu at, at, at alma draft houses or they did um and th sometimes they'll have themed menus that are very specific to the the movie right. you're about to see um but they also had a, a trailer of sorts for an event that they were having over that summer and you and i had gone to see i don't remember the movie because we've done several um but they had had and it, they said um, a celebration of 1984 or something around that, I'm paraphrasing, um, being the best summer for movies ever. Um, and it just started 
rattling off all of these movies from mm-hmm. 1984 that they were going to be playing throughout the summer. Um, the two I remember was Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock was there. Um, and then also uh, the, the original Terminator uh, was one of them. And, and there was just this, and there was just this uh, kind of cascade of all of these movies that had come out in the year 1984. And what a great year for movies that was. Uh, and I remember you leaning over to me and saying, that really was a great year for movies, uh, you know, and I, and 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 it's true, and 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 yet I really loved that as as kind of uh, uh, being emblematic of like how Alamo Draft House specifically um, that that they are lovers of film, right? Like they are lover, lovers of the medium in in ways similar to how we are lovers of these mediums we broaden it out on this podcast into interactive mediums and TV shows and other things too, but, but that it's a, that, that they truly embrace the medium and all of the dimensions of it. And, uh, and I, I really will credit them for making me think more about the medium and how valuable it is. Um, I have always enjoyed a movie when I went to Alamo draft house more than when I would have gone to a Cinemark or an AMC um, where those were simply just, gatekeepers for the movie that i just wasn't allowed to see at home yet um and and alamo always made it a celebration it was always fun it was always the food was delicious it was the 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 pre-roll stuff was funny uh the people were just uh delightful to be around uh the you know whether it was servers ticket takers what have you um the lobbies are just you know peppered with all these great uh uh throwbacks to classic movies uh posters and 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 uh, uh models and all kinds of stuff that and and it just the, even there there's for some of the alamo draft houses that we attended there would be these huge cabinets that were actually filled with with analog film with actual reel-to-reel film um that that was real film that they would actually break out and and play at various events um all of it just getting back to the fact that these are movie lovers. They weren't lovers of a movie or a couple of movies that the, that the medium was important to them. Um, and it's unfortunate because once you've tasted that at an Alamo draft house, you know, and I'm sure there's somewhere else in the world or the United States or what have you that, that, you know, tries to do the same thing here. I can only speak to my experience at Alamo draft house, but, but boy, it really, it really does throw into stark relief uh what a what a uh sterile and sometimes less than enjoyable experience any other theater has been right like i i think i it's almost heartbreaking what little love other theaters uh show towards this like truly incredible medium i mean it is just a gate it's it's just a thing to have to get through because you're not allowed to watch this movie at home that's the only it's thing a, that it offers they haven't um, they just just yeah, overpriced they haven't had to compete uh, they've had they're, they're the gatekeepers they've had exclusive access and so hopefully that changes hopefully post pandemic they need to even though they still have the exclusive contracts now they have to win customers back who've live two years without going to theaters. Uh, so it's going to be interesting. But yeah, I was curious because this was not, this is a movie that sounds very deep, very thoughtful. It's not one of the releases from 1984 that's a, a big, boisterous summer action blockbuster in any way. It's intimate in a way that feels like you'd want to go with family. You'd want to go with people who you're going to sit around and 
smoke some weed and talk about afterwards and maybe not have your feet sticking to the floor. And um, so, yeah, I was curious about that. Uh, we are way over our time. So way over. We, we've made it. We've come through the other end. We are not going to cover home servers today. And I think, you know, that may be something that we hit as a bonus episode because there's so much I want to say about it from a consumer standpoint, but I think we're just going to have to get to it another time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the, uh, getting better week over week things and, uh, you know, just telling everybody how the sausage is made here a little bit. And we, uh, uh, talked off air about, you know, uh, trying to keep a little bit tighter with our, with our topics. Uh, one of the, uh, the opposite sides of the blessing of being able to have incredible conversations for more than half of our lives together. And then just turning the mic on is sometimes that stuff's a bit, bit unfiltered and goes on a bit long and uh, appreciate everybody listening and uh, hang hunkering down with us for as long as we're yammering on. So uh, I promise we'll, we'll get, we'll get it as tight as we need to here. We record on Thursdays, uh, new episodes post Friday mornings, uh, smash that subscribe button and definitely subscribe five star reviews. It'll encourage us to keep getting better. One star reviews will not encourage us to stop. Give us that thumbs up. Peace everybody.